As of Friday, Katy Perry had more followers on Twitter than any other human being on the face of the earth. And that probably doesn't mean a whole lot to the people here today. It'll mean more to the nine o'clock, 11 o'clock service, rather, and it meant even more to those who were here last night. I don't know much about Twitter, but I know that it's designed to really feed the egos of people who are on Twitter, quite frankly, because they have all these followers. In her case, she has over 100 million followers. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? In the top 10, in addition to her name, I found five other musicians' names, names which you may or may not be familiar with. Justin Bieber, perhaps you've heard that name. He's number two. Number four is Rihanna. Number five is Taylor Swift. And then there is Lady Gaga at number six. What a name. And what a person, by the way. And then tenth is Justin Timberlake, who resides in my hometown and evidently his hometown, too, of Memphis, Tennessee. The question I asked myself as I was thinking about that information was if Jesus had come in this century instead of the first century, would he have his name listed on Twitter? And if so, would it appear in the top 10, even the top 20, the top 100? Would it even appear? Well, it might appear for a while because of the nature of his ministry. Jesus was a person who did miraculous things, and consequently, he got quite a following for his day, probably the greatest following of all those people in Israel. Yet he would not have stayed there very long, because Jesus' interest is not primarily in how many people follow him. Rather, his interest is in the quality of of the commitment that is represented in those who follow him. The passage that we're looking today illustrates Jesus' strategy. It seems as though the nearer Jesus came to the end of his ministry and consequently to the end of his life here on earth, the more harsh his statements were about what it took to really be his follower. So let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of John, chapter 6. We pick up where we left off last Sunday. And we're going to read verses 60 through 71 to the end of this chapter. John 6, 60 in the New American Standard Bible reads this way. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said... This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe 
and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Iscariot, Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The first thing that we want to note in this passage of Scripture is Christ's deliberate thinning of the ranks of his disciples. Now let me pause just a moment and note in its most basic meaning the word disciple means someone who attaches himself and follows another from which he wants to gain something. It doesn't have to do with the level of one's devotion. It has come to mean that to us who really understand what a disciple of Christ is from the New Testament point of view. But Jesus was interested in thinning the ranks of his disciples because, as we've already seen, he was interested primarily not in the number of his disciples, his followers, but in the faithfulness of those same followers. Now, by the way, Jesus is not the first one in Scripture who did such a thing. Remember who Jesus is. The Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God. If we go back to the book of Judges, to the 12th century B.C., long before Christ, we see the Lord coming to a man named Gideon and giving him some instructions as to how to gather an army to fight the ominous enemy of the Midianites. And so Gideon gives the call for men in surrounding tribes in Israel to gather with him to make up the army. There were 32,000 men who showed up. The Lord simply said to Gideon, too many. He said to Gideon, all those who are newly wed and all those who are cowards, tell them to go home. 20,000 went home. The previous year had been a good year for marriage in Israel. The Lord then said, seeing 10,000, he said, too many. He gave instruction as Gideon would watch the men drink from a stream of water as to whom he would choose. And only 300 men drank in the manner that God told Gideon to look for. What's interesting is, of the two groups, the group that was dismissed, 90, what was it, 11,700 were sent home, leaving only 300. Those 300 lapped like dogs 
And they were not people whom you would choose to be in the army. So God wanted to get it down to 300 people, 300 of the most unlikely people to serve in this capacity. And God ensured his glory and won an incredible victory. So I repeat, God is not interested merely in numbers. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, is not interested primarily in numbers. Now, numbers matter. We have an entire book in the Bible which is named Numbers. It's interesting, as I was reading in our map journal reading just this past week in chapter 1, there is this numbering of the various tribes of Israel, the total number of all the males 20 years of age and older who are fit for war, numbered 603,550 people. Precise numbering. But what I looked at that I probably had not noticed until that point was, there was this description after they were numbered. It says they were not only numbered, but they were numbered by names. Everyone's name. That's a lot of recording of names, isn't it? And this is an insight. The Lord is interested in numbers to the extent that the numbers represent individuals. God knew Gideon. God knew Moses. God wants to know you and me. He's interested in a relationship with us, and he's interested in instilling in us a commitment that stands the test of time and of being identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. On September the 1st, 1954, Paul Bear Bryant took a group of Texas Aggie football players to Junction, Texas, in the Hill Country. Now, the Hill Country is generally beautiful, but at this particular time in American history, in Texas history, for four long years, that region of Texas had been in a terrible drought. Two more years followed. The heat, even in early September, would reach and sometimes surpass in that 10-day football camp the century mark, always hovering near 100 degrees. Practice would begin at 7 a.m. in the morning and go until sometimes 11 a.m. at night. And there were very few water breaks which were given. Paul Bryant thought that was a way for him to really know who the men in the group were. When he had become the coach the previous February, there were 100 members of the Texas A&M football team. By the time they broke camp at Junction, on the 10th of September, that number had been reduced to 38 or in some cases, 27, depending on who tells the story. But suffice it to say, there was a drastic reduction from 100 down to under 40 people. Now, Bear Bryant, when he died, held the record of the most wins of any college football coach in history, 323 wins. He won six national championships. We know Nick Saban won his sixth national championship at Alabama this year. Those were the same number of championships that Bear Bryant won. But Saban is over 100 victories short, and I doubt if he's going to catch Bear Bryant in that area. Bryant won 18 SEC championships, and I can't remember specifically how many 
Saban has won but less. But look, this is what Bryant was about. What was the intent upon? Not just having a large squad of players, but a specific kind of player. A player who was tough and committed. As the story went about the Junction Boys, Jim Dent, former writer for the Star-Telegram, I believe, in Fort Worth, or maybe the Dallas Morning News, I can't remember. He told about how at night players would leave under the cover of darkness. They'd just grab a blanket and get out of there as quickly as they could. They were embarrassed. They didn't want to be embarrassed. Well, look, Jesus wants people whose loyalty to him is unquestioned. Those are the kind of people he's looking for who are his followers. So what method did Jesus use in thinning the ranks of his disciples? Well, let's look now at the scripture here in verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? The word translated difficult does not mean difficult to grasp with the mind as much as it means difficult in the sense of accepting it. This hard saying of Jesus was hard to accept. And the reason it was hard to accept is because it flew in the face of the doctrinal beliefs that these people had to whom he had spoken these truths. The sixth chapter is a very enlightening chapter about the person of Christ, but also about the people in this setting who responded by leaving Christ primarily because of this hard teaching that he was given. For instance, in this passage, in verses 33, 38, and 51, Jesus speaks about how he came down from heaven. Let's just look at 51 since we're in the vicinity I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. He says that over and over again. What they quickly concluded, it didn't take long for them to understand what he was saying. If he's come down out of heaven, he was in heaven before he existed on earth. He is saying, in effect, that he is God. They had a real problem with this because they knew he was from Nazareth. They knew that his father was Joseph and his mother was Mary, at least that's what they thought, that's in this text in the 6th chapter too. And in other Gospels, what we read is, people responded to these kinds of statements and acts of Christ with the statement, he is blaspheming. And what they meant by that, he's claiming to be God. The doctrine of the incarnation was difficult for them to swallow. And this stood as a roadblock to their really selling out as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. To this day, this is a problem for some people. It may even be a problem for you today. Maybe you don't believe that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, if you don't, you are not really a true believer in Jesus. A whole book is devoted to this. 1 John is devoted to a treatment of this. But there is another aspect of this, not only the incarnation, but also the cross of Jesus. Let's read a little further in verse 51. 
if anyone eats of this bread, remember what the bread of life is. Jesus is the bread of life. He shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. What is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about his death on the cross. We're going to see more and more treatment of this as we work our way through the Gospel of John. This was something they really resisted. They could understand the possibility of a person trying to earn his own salvation, but the whole notion that a person could do something by sacrificing his life to save them, that was unthinkable as far as they could surmise. And especially as it had to do with death on a cross. In the book of Deuteronomy, the Bible says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So they knew if someone was hanged on a cross, that person was an expression of someone who was cursed by God. Now the reality is Jesus was cursed by God. Do you know that? Jesus was cursed by God. The Bible says God the Father made Jesus the Son to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. The wages of sin is death. God killed Jesus on the cross. Now I know that the New Testament speaks about how the Jews killed Jesus, speaks about how the Roman Empire killed Jesus, and the reality is we participated in some way by virtue of our sinning against God. But in reality, it was God's idea. God the Father, God the Son collaborated, and this is the plan of salvation. It's a marvelous plan that God has established for our salvation, that God would die for us. But this, too, was problematic for these people. It was another hard saying. The idea of God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that was a hard thing for them to take. The idea that Christ would die, the Messiah would die on a cross, on a tree, that was even a tougher pill for them to swallow. It still is today. It was in Paul's day, remember? What Paul said in his letter to the Corinthians, that the cross, the message of the cross, the work of Christ on the cross, was foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. And the reason it was a stumbling block is what we've already seen, because cursed is every man who is hanged on a tree. And then the last thing that's noted in this section of Scripture, in the sixth chapter of John, that leads these people to see the teaching of Jesus to be so difficult, not intellectually necessarily, but spiritually being able to commit one's life to someone who is like Jesus, is God's electing grace, which says that God is the one who takes the initiative in our salvation. Do you know if you did not have the work of God in your life to draw you to Jesus, you never would even start the journey? Do you understand this? Look at chapter 
6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me, Jesus says, shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Now look at verse 44. Remember, these people were listening to Jesus teach these things. No one can come to me. Now get this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. They had a hard time with that because their whole system of religion was oriented toward working your way into God's good graces. But what does the Bible say? This always has to be the final resort, by the way. In Romans chapter 3, the Bible says, no one seeks God. Do you believe the Bible? Do you believe that? The Bible says in Luke 19.10 about Jesus, he came to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus came to seek us. That's the electing grace of God. And these people didn't like it. They were not going to take this as the gospel to their own peril, I might add. Well, this is the gospel. That Christ was sent by the Father for the purpose of securing our salvation. It's all God's work salvation. It's by grace. What is grace? Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is God's stooping and doing for us what we never in a million lives could ever do for ourselves. This is a hard saying today. This saying that God has elected us by His grace. There are hard sayings in the Bible that you and I face. It's not just these three. Even as believers, we choke on some of the sayings. I'd like to read an excerpt from a book by Glenn Evans entitled Daily with the King. This man really understands what it means to know Jesus and walk with him. This is his prayer to the Lord, and it's rooted in this passage which we're looking at. At this morning, Lord, may I never be one of those who becomes offended at hard sayings of yours. Many of your sayings are indeed hard, but may I never murmur against them or ever decide to follow you no longer. You disturb me often, Lord, both by your sayings and by your actions in my life. But a Christ who never disturbed me, who never corrected me, who never disciplined me would be a Christ unworthy of my trust. I praise you for the many times you comforted and consoled me and nursed my wounded feelings back to health. But I thank you also for the times you refused to comfort me and told me to stop whining and get on with the job. I think of Paul when he asked the Lord to remove his thorn in the flesh, probably an incurable eye disease. You remember that? What Jesus said to him after Paul had asked three times and the Lord had said no twice and on the third time he said enough. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made work, is made possible in your life by grace. Most of the time Mr. Evans goes on to write when you give me a hard saying I am on the brink of a startling discovery about you or about myself. It is often a prologue to a wonderful thrust forward. 
It is like lightning on a black night which suddenly reveals the landscape and shows me what I never knew was there. Hard sayings are always dividers. They divide the true disciples from the false. They divide truths from falsehoods. And they divide the right feelings from the wrong ones. A hard saying is a purifier that strips away all the crusty accumulations and leaves me clean. Hard sayings are painful, Lord, and they hurt. But how much better to have a hard saying from Jesus, who loves me infinitely, than a smooth saying from Satan, who only wants to twist and bend me away. Lord, give me sense to appreciate, yes, love your hard sayings, and so take a giant stride to glory. I will never forget thy precepts, for with them thou hast given me life. Psalm 119, verse 93. Let's now look at Christ's response to the grumbling of these so-called disciples. It's in verses 61 through 63. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Stumble in the sense of fall over something, but also it's used by Jesus himself in the book of Matthew 13, 21, where he talks about one of the soils, which we read about from Luke's gospel, and about some things happen to people which cause them, and the New American Standard translates it by these words, fall away. But literally, it's the same word, scandalizo. You hear the word scandal in that? Scandalizo, to make you not only trip and fall, but fall away. That's the idea in this text, perhaps. Maybe it's a combination of the two, depending on the individual. And then he goes on to say, what then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. Now let me pause here just a minute. The little phrase, the flesh profits nothing. Understand, this is referring to those who had heard Christ's words with an earthly mindset, looking merely merely at the literal sense of his statement, I am the bread of life. They were hung up on the symbol as it related to something that was actually physically present. This is not the first time this has shown up. In chapters 2, 3, and 4 of John, we have examples of this very kind of thinking. In chapter 2, Remember what Jesus says in Jerusalem during the Passover? He says this. He says, I will tear this build, you tear this building down, and in three days I'll raise it up. And then they were thinking about the temple of Herod, the great temple. What was Jesus referring to? He was talking about his own body, which would be raised from the dead. That's what he was thinking about. Exactly. And then in chapter 3, in conversation with the teacher of Israel named Nicodemus, Jesus said to him, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. To which Nicodemus responded by saying, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? He was thinking literalistically, wasn't he? Jesus was speaking metaphorically or figuratively. 
He was thinking literalistically. In the fourth chapter, he encounters the woman at the well. And he talks about his having water that is living water. And she says, I want some of that. I, I don't want to have to come here if I can drink that water and it never be that I would be thirsty again. I want to get some of that. Jesus says, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who is speaking to you, you would respond to receive that water. And she said, well, sir, this well is deep. I don't see you with a bucket in your hand. How in the world are you going to get that water? What was she doing? She was thinking literalistically again, just like all these other people whom I had mentioned so far. And that's what was problematic for these people, the flesh prophets, nothing. Looking at things through the lens of a worldly, literalistic, closed continuum, that was problematic for them. When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he's saying, I'm your inner food. And we saw last week, and let's go back and look at this again. Let's look at verse 40 of chapter 6. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now glance down at verse 54, this statement that was so problematic to them who heard it, and it is to people even today. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. This corresponds to verse 40. There's an obvious parallelism here. I will raise him up on the last day. So what is Jesus saying in figurative terms that he's already said in more concrete terms in verse 40? He who beholds the Son, sees Jesus, and believes in him may have eternal life. So, this idea was difficult. Jesus is responding to that idea. Let's read a little further in verse 63. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Jesus' words, now listen carefully, bring God's spirit who gets to us through Christ's words. Though God has given us his word, it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And Jesus' words open the door for the Spirit to reveal His truth and to reveal Jesus to us. Think about the things which are said in Scripture, sometimes by Jesus, sometimes by Paul and others. These are two descriptions of the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit of truth. What is truth? Well, Jesus gives us clear indication as to what constitutes truth in John 17, 17. Sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. He is the spirit of life. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of life. And this life that he speaks of here, my words will be the agent of the spirit for life for you. In Luke 18, 8, excuse me, 11, we saw as we read the parable of the soils where Jesus interprets that he said this. He said, the seed is the word of God. And then when he talks about the good soil, which matures and through perseverance bears fruit, he talks about how they 
who are of good soil, they receive the word of God. That's how we know the truth. That's how the Spirit ministers to us, and it's Christ's words which bring us life. The Spirit comes and ministers to us through the Word. In Galatians 3, 2, and 5, if you want to look at this, I, I want to give you a second to find it. I know many of you are interested to want to know the basis of such statements as I have made regarding the play of Christ's words in bringing the Spirit of God to us. Look at verse 2 of Galatians 3. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of law or by hearing with faith? And then verse 5, does he then, it's talking about the Lord, who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Note that phrase, by hearing of faith. How does faith come? Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. That's how we receive the Spirit, right? By hearing with faith from the word of God. This close relationship between the words of Jesus and the Spirit's presence in our lives. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying at this point. I'm not equating the Bible to be the same as the Holy Spirit. But we do know it's God's Word. It's inspired by the Bible. It's illuminated by the Spirit. Inspired by, not the Bible, it's inspired by the Spirit and illuminated by the Spirit. Well, let's move on to the second part of this text. The first part is the thinning of the ranks of his disciples by Jesus. The second is the testimony of the twelve who can't go away. I really like this. Let's read 64 through 66 as we move in that direction. 64 says, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. To those who heard that, these people who ended up going away, it was like he was rubbing it in when he said this. He's saying the same thing which he has said already in the 44th, 44th, 44th verse, having to do with what? With God's initiative and his work in our salvation. Let's get, look at verse 66. As a result of this, many of the disciples withdrew. Now, what we don't see when we read this, this is a nice translation. It gives a picture to us. But here is what it literally says. As a result of this, these sayings, that last one especially in 65, it was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back in their minds. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew. And this is what it literally says in the language. They came out from behind him. That's what it really means. They came out from behind him. Do you remember, and many scholars believe that what I'm about to remind you of occurred in this same time frame. The general consensus of scholarship, and it's represented in the verbs which are used in this passage of Scripture, not the meaning of the word, but the grammar which is employed by John and by Jesus, 
many scholars believe that this withdrawal was not like that. I had the notion for, up until I did this study, quite frankly, that the whole 5,000 whom he had said just left in mass. But the language here would suggest there was this slow dwindling of the numbers. And over time, maybe even a matter of weeks or months, these people left. But at the same time, it suggested that what is recorded, for instance, in the 18th chapter of Matthew, the story of Jesus asking, who do men say that I am? Do you remember that? And what did Simon Peter say? You are the Christ, Son of the living God. And what did Jesus say, say in response to that? He said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Simon, son of John. And then um, he began to talk. I'm talking about Jesus now. He began to talk about his impending death and the nature of it, how he would be scourged and mocked and crucified and then raised again on the third day as he talked about that. And then what does Peter do then? He made this tremendous declaration of truth. What does he do then? He pulls Jesus aside and says, this cannot be so for you, Lord. And then what does Jesus say? What was he saying? Don't go too far extreme, Lord. We want you here. We don't want you to go and suffer all that awful stuff on the cross. But what does Jesus say? Get thee behind me, Satan. Now here again, I've thought probably improperly about that. Get thee behind me, Satan. I thought, just get out of here, dude. But this is really what he was saying. He said, you got out from behind me. Our place as a disciple is to be behind Jesus. Why? What does he say? If anyone wishes to come after me, let him do what? Deny himself and do what? Take up his cross and then finally do what? Follow me. If I'm following someone, I've got to be behind that person. He got out from behind the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is the essence of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. If you really want to follow Christ, you're going to be behind him. You're going to submit yourself to him. And you're going to trust him implicitly because of who he is. Verse 67, Jesus therefore said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Have you ever heard the words of Jesus? Hopefully you're hearing them today. Have you ever really heard the words of Jesus to you? Not necessarily with your ears, physically speaking, but in your hearts. And if you have, you have had the experience that a couple of Jesus' disciples had with him on the road to Emmaus when Jesus opened the scriptures and beginning with Moses and going through the Psalms and the prophets, he said to them, these are the things which point to the Messiah. And all of a sudden, they realized who he was, and as soon as they realized who he was, Jesus vanished. And then they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us? when he taught us the word of God? Have you ever had that happen to you? Where you sense that something inexplainable apart from a miracle was happening when you were reading the Bible. God is speaking to you through Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit through the word of God. Lord, to whom shall we go? 
we have no one else like you. You have the words of eternal life. Let me speculate. This is sanctified speculation here. This is not found in any Bible. It's just my entering in a little bit the minds of Peter and his cohorts. Lord, we've been thinking about bailing. Lord, we've considered the alternatives. You embarrass us sometimes. You scare us a lot of the time. You blow our minds even more often. You even confuse us. You offend people unnecessarily. You disdain political correctness. You spend too much time with riffraff. But we can't find anyone else like you, Jesus. Your words, these words meet our deepest current needs. And they assure us of eternal life. They calm our fears. Do you have the word of Jesus ever doing that? It amazes me how inclined I am at times and how inclined you are at times when we're in trouble to go everywhere else before we go to Jesus in the word. This is the devil's means of keeping us in a funk because we get stuck on our circumstances, which many times are horrible, horrible. But miraculously, Jesus' words are the only words that have the power to sustain us and to change us. And not only, Lord, Peter would have been saying on behalf of the twelve, not only, Lord, do your words do this for us, but your character underscores your words. Look at verse 69. And we have believed. Let me stop here just a moment. Peter chose a tense of a verb, which means we believe and we're in this for the long haul. We're not backing out of this commitment. Lord, we have tried to get out of it, but we, for the life of us, cannot because we are committed, Lord. We know Peter bailed for a time on the Lord, as did the others who make up the apostolic group. But he came back, as did they all, with the exception of one. We're going to talk briefly about him today. And he goes on to say, And we have come to know you as the Holy One of God. We know your character is perfect. We have seen it. We've seen you in difficulty. We've seen how you have risen above your own personal interest in favor of meeting the needs of the multitudes. We have seen how when we are fussing and fighting, you have just the way of settling things, and you don't get embroiled in our difficulties in the sense of picking sides and playing favorites. Lord, you are not annoyed by the things which annoy us. Lord, you are the righteous one. You are the holy one of God. We have watched you, Lord. You fulfill the prophecies regarding the Messiah, Lord. These two things, the word of God through Jesus, you have the words of eternal life, and his character. They have a way of cementing us to the Lord Jesus Christ.
I'll never forget, as I had a conversation with one of my fraternity brothers in college, actually he was a pledge at the time, I was an active in the fraternity, an officer in the fraternity, I had sought to uphold my walk with the Lord, I didn't do it perfectly during that time, but I had sought to follow the Lord and be ready to give a witness for Christ in that environment, in a college fraternity. And one of the pledges named Tommy Jacks, he and I had been friends since we were probably 11 or 12 years old, went to the same church. But I have observed some behavior in Tommy that was anything but pleasing to the Lord. And we had a conversation. I wanted to make sure that Tommy understood the gospel to the extent that I could help him to be sure. I shared the gospel with him, and he said, you know, Mike, I have received Jesus. I haven't been walking with him as I ought. Thank you for sharing this with me. And then I had the privilege, probably four or five years later, to perform the first wedding I ever performed for Tommy and his wife. I saw him about 10 years ago at a reunion of a ball team that he and I played on. It was a, a very enjoyable experience for him and for me and all others on that team. And he still has his faith in the Lord. Do you know what the good definition of a a true believer in Jesus is somebody who can't quit. We want to quit. And you say, hey, I wish you'd quit preaching. Well, I'm not through yet, but I'm almost through. But let's look at the traitor in the ranks. We know him, don't we? Judas. He has not believed, and he will not leave. Here are three things that baffle me about him. Christ chose him just like he chose the other apostles. Now remember, the apostles were chosen by Christ after Christ had spent an entire night praying to the Father for wisdom as to whom he should choose to be his apostles. Apostles are a subset of disciples. Every one of us who knows Jesus is a disciple. We have attached ourselves to him. We are to follow him. But Jesus chose Judas the same way he did the others. In John 17, 12, let's take a quick look at that. Jesus, as he's praying to the Father the night before he's to die for our sins, look at what he says in John 17, 12. While I was with them, he's talking about his apostles, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. It was God's will to use one of the inner circle of Jesus to betray him. But Jesus chose him, according to Luke 6, 12 through 16. The Father's will was that one of the twelve would betray Jesus. This is a mystery to us, but it's God's plan. Jesus gave power. Here's the second thing that's baffling. He gave power to Judas to do miracles. He sent them out in pairs. Remember that? And they performed miracles. And they came back and they reported in astonishment at how even the demons responded to their work. People were healed. People were exercised. And lo and behold, Jesus gave the money bag to Judas. And the Bible tells us that he stole from it. Jesus knew all this. He knew it when he called him. He calls him a devil in this passage that we're looking at this morning. Judas was always against Jesus, though he looked 
opposite. In 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, we read these words, Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. Those other 11 apostles had no inkling that Judas was demonized. How do I say that? In Matthew's recalling of the institution of the Lord's Supper, when Jesus reveals to them that it will be one of their number, the 12, who will betray him, each one of them began to say, Surely it is not I, Lord. They were frightened, the other 11. God forbid, surely it's not I, Lord. But Judas knew his identity. He's the arch traitor. He's worse than a Benedict Arnold or a Quislinger. Outwardly a disciple, outwardly a lover of Christ, inwardly a devil opposed to all that God desires. In our church, it's probable if, and possible that all three types of people will be here this weekend. Some who have started well will drop out. Some of you have dropped out and you've come back today. That's good news. Remember, Peter dropped out. The other apostles, the other ten, they dropped out, but they all came back, didn't they? Isn't that awesome? They all came back. The Bible says about the righteous person, the righteous person falls seven times, but gets up and gets back in the way of the Lord every time. But there are many in this room, this very room, who cannot give up. Many of you have tried to. I can't tell you how many times in my over 50 years almost 60 years of following Jesus Christ, I have wanted to quit. And even more since I became a pastor almost 40 years ago, I've wanted to quit over and over and over again. Due to my own inadequacy, due to my own sin, due to the conflicts which are inherent in seeking to lead a group of God's people over and over again. But I haven't been able to. I'm glad I haven't. The Lord stopped me and stopped me, and he's always drawn me back because he has the words of eternal life. There's no one who compares to him. There's no one worth following in this world except Jesus Christ. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, he depicts Pilgrim, the main character, as he's nearing the celestial city, and he's finds himself engaged in warfare with the devil. And he's thinking, Pilgrim, I, I, I want to get out of here. And all of a sudden it occurs to him, he's fully armored in the armor of God. But none of it covers his back. So he reasons rightly, if I turn my back and start running away, I'm really vulnerable to the devil. So don't turn your back on the Lord. Some of you are here today thinking, I'm about ready to give it up. Well, don't give up on the Lord. Give up on yourself. Do that in terms of your own ability to live the Christian life. You cannot live it by yourself. It's to be lived in total dependence upon the Lord. Apart from me, you can do nothing, is what Jesus says. Through me, you can do everything. And here's the third group. Some who stay with Jesus do it for their own purposes. 
They follow Jesus for what Jesus can do for them, not for who Jesus is. If you're following Jesus only for what he can do for you, may I say it? You're not a true disciple of Christ. You haven't understood it. It means yielding your life to him and being grateful that he would call you to be one of his own. Matthew Henry, great commentator from centuries past, said in relation to this whole matter of Judas, many that seem to be saints are really devils. Now I have no interest in knowing if you're a devil. But what I do have interest in is that if you are not for real, that you give your lives to Christ and sell out to him. He's the son of perdition. Not a good outcome for him. In this life or eternity, would you bow your head? Lord, we come to you this morning. We thank you that you've come to seek and to save that which is lost. We ask for people here today who have dropped out having once believed that they would renew their commitment to you today. If you're one of those people, would you just say in your heart, Lord, I want to make it right. I want to come back to you. I don't know what I was thinking about, Lord, when I tried to run away. Would you receive me back, Lord? And certainly he'll say, I've been waiting for your return. I never rejected you. You just turned your back on me. I won't lose you. Remember what I told you. For those of us who are walking in commitment, let us be sure to understand Peter was one of those who was hanging tight with the Lord. Let's ask the Lord, if we're walking with the Lord today, Lord, we are humbled that we could walk with you, that you called us to walk with you. And protect us, Lord, from choosing our own way instead of continuing to keep our, keeping our eyes on you, Lord. And then, Lord, for those people who might be here today who are just in it for themselves, like Judas was, if you're one of those people, would you say, Lord, I'm coming clean with you today. I got to get right with you, Lord. Please, please accept me. And he says, but as many as received me, to them I give the right to become children of God. Would you welcome Jesus into your heart? Right now in your hearts, welcome Jesus into your heart. Thank you, Lord.